Welcome. I'm J. Michael Silver, and this is Foundational Steps, the show where I talk with people about the choices they make to get where they are in life. In this episode, I'm talking with Todd Denick. Todd is a living miracle. His latest book is out now, It Will Come. It's about his real-life story of surviving sepsis. You'll learn in this episode, just surviving wasn't enough for Todd. If he doesn't inspire you and show you what's possible, I don't know what will. Links for Todd, his book, and all things that came up while we talked are below. Please leave a comment or a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts and check out our affiliate links for cool things you might find of value. Enjoy our conversation. Awesome. Todd, welcome. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, so let's let's just jump in. Uh, tell me, uh, how would you define yourself uh, today? Like right now, like, you know, uh, father, husband, teacher, like what, what's your kind of, you know, a couple words that define yourself or sentence? Uh, today's an important day for a variety of reasons. Um, but I think we'll start with that. Yeah. Father of a 16 year old son who starts his big exams tomorrow. Nice. So we're all rooting for him. Husband, I met my wife, it'll be 20 years ago next month that we've been together. Um, I'm an educator. I teach language and literature, and currently I'm a librarian, and I absolutely love that job. And I'm working at an international school in Erlangen, Germany, where we host students and staff from 40 different countries. So it's a, a vibrant, positive, wonderful place to be. Yeah, that's amazing. And uh, friends all over the world too. Once yeah. people leave, so it's so it's great. We can almost go knocking on doors, and from China to Southern Italy to <laughs> yeah. have a friendly face greeting you. It's funny. Um, Ashley jokes with me because I have um, I know people around the world, and so mm -hmm. um, you know either from from high school, from college, just randomly meeting people. And like, and I said, oh, we should go to Australia. And she's like, oh, I bet you know people there. I'm like, yeah, I do actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's great to be part of the part of the world, part of the international yeah. community. Yeah, it really is. It makes a difference. I feel like, in in terms of um, feeling like a you know a small world, <laughs> a small world after all. You know, oh, it yeah. Uh, yeah. makes things a little bit closer to home when you know people who are living in that part of the world or whatever. Yeah, or what I love is just being able to host. I mean, that's such an opportunity that not many people get to get to offer. Yeah. It's an interesting thing there. The, uh, you know, when I started rock climbing, one of the things that I realized about climbing, um, when you're, when you're on belay and someone's tied in and they're climbing up and they've got the rope attached to them and they're hooking it in, you've got to give more than you take. And uh, it's important to take and know when to take, but you've got to give to protect their life and your life because you're attached to each other. Yeah. And, um, and it's an interesting thing, but it really is a, a metaphor for life, you know, give more than you take, mm -hmm. but taking is, is also equally important um, to keep a balance and, and be safe. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. And yeah, that, it's a really insightful way to kind of start our conversation too. And um, if I could go back and add to the who I am. Yeah, please. Uh, 
there's one other thing that, that I mean we could talk about as well if we get the chance and our son who's 16 he's uh, suffers from a mitochondrial issue and um, so our our family has been kind of in a, a constant medical state for many many years and part of that yeah with me was um three years ago i had sepsis and um almost three years ago exactly it it's yeah, there are three times in the month of march that it nearly killed me and all of that it's a large part of it happened is because i i let things get out of control mm-hmm. And I really relied on modern medicine to save me, to make me feel productive and effective again, rather than understanding what it is I need to do to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the profession, the education profession is, it's demanding, it's quick paced, it's, yeah. it's not easy. And, uh, a lot of times you battle through because battling through a little cold, allergies, a little flu is much easier than writing sub plans or worrying about what it is that your students are going to do to somebody else in the classroom. And, right. And I know a number of educators who just, they have that drive and they want to be there and they just work and work and work until it's too late. And uh, whether, you know, a severe illness will get you or pneumonia or a nasty cold, you know, it's, it's really takes something pretty extreme to, to stop you in your tracks. And, and unfortunately, that's exactly what sepsis did to me. So, you know, let me, so normally I would ask, uh, you know, what was the first moment you really felt alive in your body and you mm-hmm. know, the, the questions, you know, the choices you make are, you know, affecting your reality and so forth, but because you went through something and I don't even know how many people know what sepsis is. Um, so first, I guess define sepsis uh, mm-hmm. for me a little bit, just to make sure I know, I think I know, um, I, I have a teeny bit of experience with it. So I think I have an idea of, of what yep. it is, but define it. And then how did that change your relationship with, um, you know, your consciousness, your, your identity, your ability to be in your body and say, Oh, these are the choices I'm making and they affect my reality. So if that all makes sense. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, I can clarify, but start with, uh, start with the, the sepsis. How, how is it defined or how is it uh, understood um, so, from a or a personal standpoint? Yeah, basically what it is, is you have an infection and the body works over time to get rid of that infection. And in doing so, it's the body's on overdrive Mm -hmm. and moving and moving and working and working. So the process of healing and repairing and fixing the body is actually killing itself. Mm. So uh, what I went through, um, 
I was with lung infections, my organs were shutting down. Uh, I had um, the infection that I had rested in my throat. And so I have, uh, you'll see me drinking quite a bit because I had, I had three major surgeries on my throat to uh, let the infection drain. Oh, wow. Um, I was intubated, first of all, for three weeks, and then I had a tracheotomy for over three months. And so when you're asking this question about when uh, did you feel the, you know, these changes that are alive in your body, it's, it's really been nearly every day for the past three years. And part of that is I mentioned earlier that uh, today is kind of a little bit of a special day for a number of reasons. And one is that I was going back and I was looking, you know, reviewing the book that I wrote about my experience. And today was the first day three years ago that I walked again. Wow. Um, I was in a coma for eight weeks. So when I woke up, I couldn't walk. I couldn't talk. I couldn't swallow. Uh, so three years ago this month, I started the process of learning how to do all those things that you know how to do once you come out of the womb. Yeah. And to be honest, it, it's not, there are, you know, these great moments where you're taking the first steps or, you know, you're taking your first drink of water in three months that of course always stand there, but it's a lot of it is, and it's still today, just a daily battle. And learning how to, you know, you've been given a, a new lease on life and learning how to deal with it. Um, I was, you know, for example, I was always a musician. And once I got out of the hospital, I could only play guitar or bass for just a few seconds. Ah, geez. And so it, and I was so exhausted and tired and, and of course been working and working and practicing and practicing because it's something that I love to do. And so all of that comes back and it really is kind of learning how to settle with yourself because it took a long time for me to realize that I won't be I probably never will be who I was three and a half years ago. I mean, and that is a, that's a, that is a, a difficult. Yeah. That's a, that's a difficult lap for to take in. I mean, there could be an argument made that you were never that person either. So it was just an idea of a person and, uh, you know, I my I've been playing with this idea, uh, which evidently is is I'm not new to this idea. <clears throat> but when I came up with that, I hadn't really thought about it before or heard it. But the identity is just a uh, a launch pad for conversation and, and communication, mm -hmm. and it really serves no purpose <laughs> other than give us a starting place to communicate mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, the identity 
you know, is so like at any point in time in our life, you know, we may, which is, you know, kind of why, why I started with that first question at any point in time in life, we may define ourselves differently and which means our identity is different. And so, you know, at any moment in time, you know, if we look back and say, oh, well, at that point in time, I was a musician or at this point in time, I was a writer. Um, you're still you through those different phases, but your, your identity is changing. Therefore, you are not nearly as static as, you know, people would think, you know, people like to believe themselves to be this one thing. And it's like, well, <laughs> you're one thing at this moment in time. Right. You know, it's, it's the, uh, the measurement of a, a particle versus a wave in physics. Mm-hmm. You know, right now you are, you know, X, Y, one, three, six, whatever, but in two seconds, that's going to be different. And, um, it sounds like that's, it hasn't been a day-to-day experience now since, uh, since coming out of your coma. Yeah, it's, you're right. It's, it's really is this kind of re- yeah, possibility opportunity to reinvent and uh, a lot of that has come through you know with the therapy the um, psychological therapy and physical therapy that I've that I've gone through and it's uh, it's yeah it, it's a struggle to 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 have a new opportunity when you're in your forties. <laughs> yeah. New paradigm uh, shift. Well, what was your, to give some context. So prior to contracting sepsis um, and then you can tell us how you got it. Um, okay. But prior to getting sepsis, where would you say you resided in your thinking in terms of your being or your, your decision-making and, and, like your awareness of, of how your decisions impact your life, like prior, prior to sepsis, like, mm-hmm. how, like, can you put yourself in your mindset at that point in time in life prior, anytime prior, you know, whether, you know, 30, 20, you know, five, um, how, how did you operate in this world differently? You know, what was that like making decisions and, and being alive? Yeah, you've made the comment earlier about this, the equity between giving and taking and part of what got me and started in that, the downfall towards sepsis was I was always kind of looking back, giving more of myself. And this is, this may sound a little selfish, but giving more of myself than I should have. Yeah. Then was reasonable than was healthy uh and part of that you know when being in the classroom you give and give and give to the kids because they need it and in 2017 i I took over as part of the as the head of our english department at the school Mm -hmm. so not only was i giving and giving and giving to the students but i was giving to the english teachers whom i had to represent uh, to the administration who you had to please and any free time that I had, um, anything that, you know, I could do was dedicated towards 
making sure that I was successful at right. this position. And, you know, there's that old adage, you know, just, you know, why do you give yourself so much when in two weeks, you know, you can be easily replaced by somebody else. And, but that's just part of the, the personality that's, yeah. I, I still have today and I still want to do, but I'm much more conscious about how much I'm willing to give. Yeah. And I am, it doesn't bother me anymore to say no. And that's, if I, I think if I had to choose one key difference between then and now, that would be the key to letters. So you didn't have boundaries prior um, because you felt you saw some, you saw something that you needed to do something to accomplish your goals and you would just do it. You just give yourself. Um, so your boundaries were, were maybe not limitless, but less inhibited where now you realize that there's a, a need for boundaries. There's a need to put limits on yourself um, and your, your giving and your um, abilities so as to protect yourself and, and, and your family and, and anyone hey. else you're working with. Yeah, the family, of course, because, you know, when you're in those kind of situations and you give everything that you have during those eight hours of work, then what's left when you get home? Yeah. And who takes the brunt of the frustrations? And who is there, you know, and, and that's kind of the unfortunate thing, too, is that a lot of those, I didn't have any room to air these, these grievances, these frustrations, this anger that I had that whatever it was that came with the day. And, and so it well, does change the nature of the relationship. What did you like, you know, because you have such a, a stark line in your life of before and after, mm -hmm. um, you know, and to some degree, I think, you know, it would, might be helpful to kind of talk about the two, two lives a little bit. So prior to uh, sepsis, what were, what were your coping mechanisms? Like, what did you use to kind of get through the stress and, and, you know, through the difficulties, you know, in teaching, you know, marriage, fatherhood, et cetera. Yeah. Well, yeah, this can be a good place to start kind of the descent towards sepsis and sure. Uh, to be honest, I didn't handle it well. Um, in November, yeah, the fall of 2018, the stress got to me, the anxiety got to me and really started to show. Uh, I write quite a bit about it in, in my book, uh, just some of the physical ramifications of anxiety, scratching and itching and, you know, doing, you know, scratching so much that you, you bleed. And so that's a very, I, I, yeah, I really didn't know what to make of it. And my rationale was to go to a psychiatrist and get a pill to fix it. Yeah. And, well, and that's and what also society and culture has told you to do. I mean, that's not it, the, mm -hmm. that may not be the natural or the best way, but that's just what our culture in the Western world tells you that's yeah. the right thing to do. So go yeah. get a pill. And, <laughs> yeah. And then I could function i would take yeah. it in the evenings and the anxiety would go away and uh 
but not the the internal struggles were still there. It just kind of fixed fixed me so I could go through the day. And I mean, you, I remember you doing music back when we were kids back in high school. Um, Mm -hmm. And you mentioned being a musician still to this day. So was playing music not um, part of your kind of mental health routine or was it not helping you or were you not engaged in that period? I, I, I was, I was playing music and music was, you know, before was one of my main stress relievers. And yeah. even now it is too, because I realize now how therapeutic it is. Oh yeah. And I, I guess I never realized that I always felt better playing music. Oh, interesting. So maybe I never made that, made that connection. Yeah. I mean, something can't be therapeutic if you don't see it as therapeutic. So, I mean, right. you know, my mom would iron because it was meditation to her and she recognized it as meditation. So she would, you know, and she got stressed, she would go and iron. But if you don't recognize something as being therapeutic or helpful, when you do it, you may get some value, but it's not giving you the same therapy that it would if you were actually engaging in it as therapy. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can go back and pick a number of things that I've done in my life that would do that from uh, we lived 15 years in Alaska and raced sled dogs long distance sled dogs and that's so cool realizing (laughs) yeah and realizing that um those hours that you spent out on the trail in the dark in the cold and nobody and nothing around how yeah how much it pacifies yeah. the soul and everything goes away so prior to sepsis do you think some of your best outlets and and you know things that could have been the most therapeutic that might have saved you from sepsis or at least you know made it easier to deal with do you think you you just never really recognize those things for what they gave you or at that or at the same level perhaps yeah, I, well, a number of them, you know, the dogs, of course, left when we moved to Germany. Right. So I didn't have that part of the lifestyle anymore. Right. And, and really, a lot of those things that I was doing in Alaska, chopping firewood every day to stay warm, taking care of our 16 sled dogs that we had. And so I, I, I'm i kind of this victim of, or not victim, but I, I love kind of knowing what's going to happen and when I can predict what's going on through the day and maybe a lot of that I imagine a lot of that changed moving to Germany where even though being married with a German but we're still living in Alaska coming to Germany does throw you into a a brand new situation and yeah and many baffling ones too is the culture shock and different things set in yeah. I mean, even if you just moved to Texas, I mean, it's a huge culture shock from yeah, Alaska to Texas. So that's right. Um, and, and you're losing, um, that ritual and that, you know, that, uh, that practice, did you, did you even think moving to Germany to replace the, the, the ritual of, of chopping wood or training the dogs or any of that? That's, 
you know, it's the reason we left Alaska was I, I just wanted a one year break. Mm. Um, around that time, I, I had dislocated my shoulder playing ice hockey and uh, I couldn't chop firewood anymore. I couldn't run dogs anymore. I had to have surgery to put it back into place. So that that, that life that I had was gone in, in those last six, seven months in Alaska. And especially it happened in November. So going through the winter mm. and not being able to do anything is, is uh, painful. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's frustrating. It's, and there were some troubles at school and I just needed a break. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's also a destruction of your identity. Again, it's like how you define yourself. Like mm -hmm. it, it, that disappears when you cease to be able to do something and you then have to re recreate that identity. Yeah. And it, a lot of little things, you know, started to bother me and, you know, I couldn't chop firewood. So we had to hire somebody to come. And like you said, with that identity, you're standing there like, that's my job. That's yeah. always been my job. And now somebody else is doing it. Yeah. Bastard. <laughs> <laughs> for money. We have to yeah. Pay them. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I was doing it for free. <laughs> so keep going. Oh, um, I lost track, but yeah, with, yeah, getting back kind of going into the, into the sepsis with that November with struggling with anxiety and, and holding on to the pills and, and forcing myself to, yeah, to function, um, yeah, to survive the day. Uh, it really started the downfall in, in, in January, early January, we went to a ninja warrior place with our son. My dad was awesome. with us. And the very first contraption thing I fell and I fell funny and the padding, you know, is yeah. three feet thick and I thought nothing of it. And, uh, it's just, a, I hurt myself because I'm old and I'm not 18 anymore. And, yeah. and they, you know, bothered me. And, and then I was out walking the dogs and I uh, took a step off the curb funny and went, that hurts. That hurts bad. And I went to the doctor and ends up, I, I broke a rib in my back, one of the small ones towards my spine. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was early January. So in February, that break had some nerve damage and I ended up with shingles. Oh, wow. And, uh, but I, I was an odd case. I didn't get the blisters and the bumps. I was, I, and again, sepsis, shingles, I, the, it's just painful, yeah. unbelievable. And there is, they can't give you enough medication to make the pain go away. And I was, I was in the hospital uh, for four days, hooked up to pain medication. And they were trying to find out what was wrong with me. And, and this was shingles well, before sepsis set in. Yeah, yeah. This was the shingles and part of the treatments for the shingles, the pain medication was a, uh, something called metamizole. Okay. And metamizole is a very popular drug here in Germany because it has the same 
positive effects of Advil, of ibuprofen, without the stomach problems. Oh, interesting. And uh, so I was given that and um, being treated for the shingles with that because I was still in pain. And again, uh, instead of taking enough time, I was back in the classroom because I had kids waiting to sit there. Right back to stress, right back to stressing yourself out and pushing yourself. Yep. And one of the, yeah, you're talking about these coping mechanisms and the coping mechanisms became anxiety pills and pain medication. Uh, and in the end of February, I started just feeling awful. And of course, I felt awful for months and months. And so I, I again, going back to that kind of idea of body awareness, I wasn't aware of what was happening to me. Mm. But this metamizole, Novogine is the, the overarching name of this. Metamizole is a, one of the brands that... And I had an allergic reaction to Novogaine, so mm. that's me And this wiped out my immune system. I had a zero blood cell count. Wow, I didn't know that white, was impossible. White, white blood, blood cell, cell count, I'm sorry. Right, I, I yeah, had, I figured, I heard white cell, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. That, I didn't know that was possible. I didn't know that was even, you'd still be alive and have a zero white, white blood cell. Yeah, um, and the, and that's yeah, that's what nearly killed me, and the, the infections just set in in my body. And again, that's where you have this high rate of this severe infection, and then your body is, you know, yeah, literally trying to to kill the infection, but it's also yeah. trying to kill kill the host as well yeah well the infection i would imagine at that point in time i mean we not to get too deep into the medical side of things but um is everywhere and so your mm-hmm. body is attacking everywhere and which then ends up you know being the uh you know being your organs you know being your your mm-hmm. you know all the soft tissue kind of thing yeah yeah and it's yeah the infection settled in my throat and they had to go in and they, yeah, the, the operation was called the dissection. So I had three dissections and they went through the lymph nodes and yeah, just to get, get rid of the, the infection. And, but of course, now that's something I'm battling daily. I, you know, still with speaking, swallowing, eating, um, just because the, you know, the medically the liquid doesn't have anywhere to go or hasn't learned right for years where to go where else to go or how or for your body what to do with how to how to process it or how to absorb it um is it i mean why why your throat i mean you know one could make a uh argument which would be esoteric at best that because you use your voice so much for work um that like on some level the 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 you know the infection went there to basically keep you from <laughs> being yeah, able to yeah. work and reduce your eventually re- reduce your stress you can't work can't be stressed <laughs> you know so, i i have very little doubt that that was working someplace like you've got to stop yeah and my body stopped in the most one of the most extreme ways possible 
your body was stopping you from doing the work, you know, to reduce the stress. Was there any other, I mean, because you, you got the injury started, it sounded with the American Ninja Warrior thing or the mm-hmm. Ninja Warrior thing uh, with your rib. Uh, and then that progressed to shingles. Right. Was there any other reason for it to end up in your throat? You know, I, I imagine when I was, like I said, I was still going to school and I was at school with hundreds of people, kids yeah, um, with no immune system. So really it could have been something as simple as catching a little cold right. from somebody and without an immune system, it just, yeah just Ah, completely took over um yeah and and oh um kind of finish that finish that story it's i uh the thing about sepsis is that it was never on my radar i felt awful sick to my stomach high temperature um i was confused and I thought that I could do it. I just need to sit down for an hour. I just need to do this. I need to drink a feed rate or whatever, and then right. everything would be fine. And I kept going and kept going. I went three days without eating and drinking because I thought I could keep going. I thought, ah, this is just something I'll, I'll get over and, and I'll be okay. And it turned into a trip uh, to the to the emergency doctor, not the emergency room, and getting prescriptions and being so swollen, so dehydrated that um, I couldn't swallow the the pills that they gave me. And again, kind of that just go go go. I, I started chewing the pills because I thought. Wow. If I eat them, the amoxicillin, the penicillin pills, yeah. I said, if I eat them and I can get them down somehow, even though I can't drink anything or eat anything, I'll be fine. And it's it's one of those moments that Sandra, my wife, and I, I still talk about, like, how do you know is the right time to say it's enough? And the time that it got to the right time to say it's enough is when we had to call the ambulance. Mm. And uh, it's the ambulance came in and in Germany, the ambulance will come with the paramedics and a doctor will follow. Oh, wow. So, you know, you get that immediate care and and the doctor came in and I I write in the book about him because that he looked like Charles Manson, just the beard and the (laughs) hair and the, the piercing eyes. And of course I was out of my mind probably with illness. Oh yeah. And fever uh, and everything else. He bent down to look at me, and of course, I was frothing at the mouth from all the pills I was trying to chew and swallow, and and I I just wanted hydration. That's all that I wanted. It's like just give me an IV and then go away, and I'll be fine. Was your and, wife at this point in time thinking, you know, my husband's lost his mind? Like, I mean, like because she's watching your descent, which is slow enough perhaps that she's along for the ride but at what point in time i mean you guys must have had some contentious moments long before 
you went, the ambulance was called? I, I don't think there was any, I was on the recliner and the dogs were sitting next to me, like kind of a normal evening, but I was, I was ill. I was out of it. I, I, I couldn't, you know, there really was no arguments. It's, it was just, should I, should I call it now? She wanted that. Okay. From me. Yeah. And even now talking about it, she's like, I should have done it earlier. I should have done it earlier, but we didn't know. Yeah. And there was no way for you to know. I mean, you're not medically trained or or what have you. Um, No, but again, I, I, the reading the body, I, I should have known if I'm chewing amoxicillin up to get better. I mean, drinking for anyone out there listening, (laughs) if you're ever chewing amoxicillin to get it down, go to the hospital. It's too late. You go to the hospital. (laughs) You're past due. (laughs) But, and, but they, they wouldn't give me a, uh, an IV. And so they said, go to the doctor, go to the emergency room. Right. And fortunately here in Erlangen, and we have one of the top medical universities in Germany. That's fantastic. They must've loved you then. Yeah. And I, yeah, they <laughs> yeah, just to skip a little bit ahead when I would go back for checkups, the doctors that took care of me in the ICU at first would come mm-hmm. and see me because they never had a chance to see the other side of their patients yeah and they were impressed that i survived yeah so i became at the ear nose and throat clinic a little bit of a had a little fame medical celebrity (laughs) yeah absolutely i mean uh, it it makes sense because it's such a a severe situation and probably not a mm -hmm. normal situation no and and my and sandra drove me to the hospital and i walked into the hospital they put me in a wheelchair. They took me into an examination room. The end. Ten, yeah, eight weeks go by in a coma. I, I, if I had been at home, I probably wouldn't have made it. Do you have any sense of like when you got there, your body said, okay, I'm done. I'm not, I'm just not doing this anymore. You guys take care of me. I, I think that's exactly what it was I the lights coming on in the examination room and a very nice doctor and then nothing. so you you felt trust when you got there you you felt a sense of trust and like you were taken care of kind of thing you were in safe hands I uh, yeah I must have yeah yeah but I'm mean, it, it just went so quickly from you know being able I, I walked into the hospital yeah That's... I walked across the street in said something to the guy at the reception because it was two or three o'clock in the morning. And uh, I think I actually walked up the few stairs. And that's wild. But the thing with sepsis, I mean, it comes and it can hit you so quickly. So quickly that, that, I mean, people, you can die overnight. You can die within hours. Well, do they think that at that point in time, when you got there, do they think the sepsis had been there for hours weeks you know days what was the was there or is there any any way of knowing they didn't know it was sepsis then but they at the ear nose and throat clinic they have their own focused clinics here mm-hmm. so it, it wasn't i wasn't in general er i was in the ear nose and throat specialty clinic. yeah they could see the infection in my throat and uh 
I think that was severe enough that they took me to the ICU that they had there in the in the ear, nose, and throat clinic. Right. And um, but that's a that's a good question. That the sepsis diagnosis, of course, came with his, when they did the blood test, and I had no immune system. I had no white blood cells. Mm-hmm. And uh, fortunately, whatever it is they were doing, they were able to put it together quickly. Yeah. And uh, the speed and the skill and the professionalism and the experience and with these doctors was, yeah, I mean, continued to be absolutely remarkable. And, um, but yeah, and, and that's one of the interesting things to talk about with the book when, when I was writing it, Sandra took a very, very, detailed notes about these yeah until i i became aware so so your your medical that, journey while you were uh unconscious your your wife took really good notes so you kind of you have um you have a, a ability to go back and see kind of what happened to you during that time then i know my temperature every day i know what medication i was taking how wow. much of it i was taking i knew when she talked to the doctors and so it's uh I, I took that and that really is the first half of the book. And I was able to fictionally recreate what had happened to me. Do you have uh, any sense of awareness during that time from the time you passed out to the time you wake, woke up? Do you have no. any, no memory, nothing? No, that's, that, there are two answers to that. And they're both one's no and one's my mind knew what was going on, I think. Um, but I, I had no idea if my parents were there. I don't know if they were there. Sandra was there every day. I have no remember. I don't remember anything, but I, I wasn't, I was in a medically induced coma. So they were giving me heavy duty medication to keep me asleep. Right. Um, because of the, I, I, yeah, I grew violent and aggressive, um, when I would start coming out of fighting for your life. Yep. And I had no idea anybody around me. And one of my prized possessions is a court order from a judge in Bavaria that they can restrain me, the medical (laughs) staff. But that was, it's kind of in, that's one of those being, being restrained and it's horrible, but, um, but the only, Memories that I have from those eight weeks are uh, what they call intensive care psychosis. Mm. And I, in the book, I, I detail those because that was my reality. And these things are, they've never happened, but they're so precise, so exact. I remember every single sense with these events. I remember what I was feeling. I remember who these things and people and creatures and whatever else was in there was. And that was my only hold. And I I still have very, very vivid memories of those. And I think the writing in the book, when I go through and, and touch on those things, it's, it's still the realist part of that experience. So you, you said the word creatures, um do you want to define that a little bit yeah they 
so one incident, uh, I, I thought in my hospital room, there was another patient and in a wheelchair and there was, he was going through something similar to what I was going through with the tracheotomy and learning to breathe again. Um, but his parents or caretakers would come every day and take care of him. And he was very polite and well-behaved when his parents were around, but when they left, he turned into some kind of psychotic creature who was giving me like the oddest advice as to how to get through whatever it was. I was, you know, you know, he, I, these images of him sitting in a wheelchair and rocking back and forth. And he was convinced that the intensity of rocking back and forth was the way to recover. And okay. so when I came to and awake, and you know, this was much later when I was sitting down and doing some writing that I would ask Sandra, it's like, did, was this guy ever in my room? And she said, no, nobody like that was ever in your room. That person never existed. I don't know where he came from, but there were a number of those. You know, I had another one where there was like a specific, like a guru type guy who was leading me into a new civilization. And we were watching the world being created and destroyed from mountaintops. And yeah, again, that of course that stuff never happens. Uh, and just kind of the insanity of what the mind is going through when it's drugged out of, yeah, literally drugged out of your mind to stay, to stay uh, asleep so you could be managed. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that could, you know, there could probably, we could probably talk for several hours just on those experiences alone. Um, Because yeah, there's all kinds of ways you can take that and process it and everything else. Um, so you're starting to come out of this. You're starting to relearn everything. Like was the new lease on life even wanted at first? Like, did you even want a new lease on life? Were you, I mean, what was, how did you, how did you make peace with the fact that you're still alive and, and fighting? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, to be honest, it's, it's still a, a fight every day because uh, I, I, I'm handicapped now. I have a 30% handicap. In, in um, walking or in what? In what yeah, way? part of, from, a lot of it's from the medication that they use to keep me asleep. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's from the effects of the shingles. Um, I have the pain in every single joint. Um, you know, I can't, I still need help getting up, getting around. I use a cane to walk now. I don't need it all the time going on longer distances. I'll use them over the right. cobblestone streets in Europe. I have to have them. Yeah. Um, the balance and, and a lot of it, you know, and, and not only the physical, but I mean, the emotional strain and I, the severe battle and still the battle with the post-traumatic stress disorder. 
Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, the anxiety was one thing, but trying to learn how to live again when, when you're convinced that everyone and everything and every noise and every breeze is going to attack. And uh, I, I still very much inhabit that world where I am one of the, the effects from the post-traumatic stress is that my fight, flight, flee is always on. Mm. And that's an incredibly exhausting way to live. Yeah, I would imagine. Um, but when I woke up, when, I, when they were helping me to walk again, it was, it, it's just so painful. And it's frustrating because months ago I was running around and now I can't do anything. I need somebody to help me move. I need somebody to help me get out of bed. Um, somebody to wheel me around and push me around in a wheelchair um, to eat. You know, I'm, somebody has to, to change the bag of brown goo that I was eating for months. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't sound the most appetizing thing. So, yeah. I mean, oh, what, I how did you, was it, was it uh, your, your son, your, your wife, a combination, you know, your parents, what was the, what was the thing that made you say, yeah, I want to do this and I'm going to keep living and I'm going to fight. And I mean, what was the, what um, was there one inciting thing or was it a multitude of things? Um. It was a multitude of things. I mean, yeah. it was, yeah, I mean, just the, the shows of love, love and support that we got in, in the hospital, mm -hmm. for example, um, getting letters from, you know, from people that we haven't seen since high school and just kind of the outreach from that, uh, the small steps that I was making you know, when, when I first woke up, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do it anymore. I just wished it was done. I didn't want to live anymore after that. And, and especially when you're starting the therapy and everything, everything is so intensely painful that it's not a way, you know, that anybody wants to, to keep going, but you know, there were things, you know, of course, you know, Sandra being there at my side every single step of the way. Um, and I even write about, that's one of the things that ends the back of the, the book is that I, I talk about the way that Sandra's love, devotion, and refusal to give up on me and to give up on Keats, her son, is really one of those is still a, a, a driving factor. And uh, when I was writing the book and I was finishing up, um, I was showing parts of it to her and she, and the book is called It Will Come. And she asked me, well, this was after I, I came up with the title for the book. And she says, well, has it? I said, no, it hasn't. It hasn't come yet. It's still, still very much work in progress. 
And she made the comment. She said, any wife would have done what I did. And I said, no, they, they wouldn't have. Some, for sure. For sure. Some, but some. Not, every, not everybody would have put up and stuck through uh, yeah, being called into the hospitals to say goodbye to their husband. Multiple times. To, to, yeah, to, to watching somebody, yeah, to watching me struggle physically and, and really, really struggle mentally as well. And I, I, I would like to, and I'd like to take this point to, if we could, just to talk a little bit about the psychiatric care that I went through, because I think that's sure. important yeah. for anybody. And and also one thing to remember that, you know, my case was extreme, but any position that you find yourself in that's where you believe that you're out of control, where you're not in absolute control of the situation can result in post-traumatic stress disorders. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be hospitalized for months. You don't have to be in a war zone. These places where, where yeah, you, you're out of control will haunt you and yeah. can haunt you. And it was one of these things going through and trying to find therapy. Uh, the first problem was trying to find a therapist who spoke English well enough. And is you speak German, but not enough to be like really in therapy in German. Yeah. And that's, you know, the medical German where it's all the same, but yeah, you're in, in German, the Stimm and Stimme are like the same word for voice and uh, kind of your personality too. And so you have to nuance. Yeah, you have to have somebody who can who can speak the same language. But mm -hmm. I, I went through probably six therapists, and I just found that the advice they were giving me was ridiculous. I, I like give give these, me an example of ridiculousness. So uh, when you're triggered, when mm -hmm. something is shocking you, imagine that you're eating a hot pepper, or imagine that you're. Uh, in your happy place or imagine that you're chewing gum something something to distract you but okay when you have these these moments they come so quickly and they come so severely that you can't think about eating a hot pepper no. or chewing gum or eating an ice cube or whatever it was um i mean i'm not a therapist but my my yeah. thinking is is you know, hold on to something and then you can maybe use the fact that you're holding on to something as a touchstone to begin to come back into yourself. But like, yeah. I'm not a therapist. That's just my, you know. Yeah, I didn't even have that. I didn't even have that. Um, What's your, what were the things that started to work then? It wasn't, it was actually, I've, I've been seeing this therapist for it's almost two years now. And, and I went through traditional, I tried hypnotherapy. Um, I you tried I the uh, eye rapid, rapid eye movement, RM or I, 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 EMDR. Yeah, EMDR. And that that's it. is what worked. 
and because the the therapist i see her language yeah she speaks english brilliantly so it's not a problem conversing but this emdr it it worked and it's still working it's it's of course a slow process and it's been um well over a year that we've been been working on this but yeah uh it's for something as so simple and so complex as the brain it, it it doesn't seem logical that it works and uh but what emdr does is it's it's found to be it's one of the few psychological uh components that they have proof that works yeah it can actually ashley's father does it uh her oh yeah he's uh he's a he's a vet um air force i think um Mm -hmm. and that's the only thing that helped him is the emdr um I mean, it's great that you, she found it for you or, you know, you came to that. Um, Mm -hmm. What else was, what else have you started to put in your, um, you know, bag of tricks, your, your, uh, you know, your um, health, you know, as you mentioned a yoga retreat that your friends had gifted you, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, what, I guess non-traditional medicines have you gone to because you also talked about how you know what part of the reason why you ended up with sepsis is because you were just pill popping and avoiding dealing with the stress and you were just pushing it down and pushing it away and so you weren't actually dealing with your mental or physical well-being so Mm -hmm. now that you're focused on your mental and physical well-being um on such a high level what are some of the other tools besides EMDR that you're using to get you there and, and maintain? Yeah, the it got to a point where kind of the modern medicine and the medication that they wanted me to take to improve uh, because of the reaction that I had to the medication I couldn't take because of this history of of side effects right and some of the stuff that they want to give you is worse than the disease itself yeah i would imagine so there's a lot of stuff that i've tried and you would read about and it helps some people but doesn't help and if Mm -hmm. it doesn't help then you gain 600 pounds and have other effects yay and uh but of the husband of somebody we knew in Alaska many, many years ago, she was from the Czech Republic and they had moved back and he's an Ayurvedic doctor. Okay. So Indian medicine. So I visited him a few times and uh, started on his regiments of, of the natural medications. Uh, His big, the one thing that I really took from that was the yoga nidra. Mm Mm-hmm. And which is just relaxation, relaxation, body awareness, and really taking the time to, yeah, to be Present. with yourself, recognizing mm-hmm. yeah, the moments. And that's another important thing that you bring that up is, is really just being present. Um, so I was, I was doing that and then COVID came and they're in the Czech Republic. It's only two hours away, but everything was shut down. Yeah. 
Um, but ironically, COVID opened up a bunch of doors for me because people were canceling appointments and so I could get in. So it was, it was a, a benefit in that way. Hmm. Um, when the Ayurvedic door was closed, I had the opportunity and I could apply and, and had the opportunity to go to a traditional Chinese medicine clinic. Hmm. And so I spent a month there and they focused on diet, acupuncture, physical therapy, um, yeah, the tea, the medication, yep. and Qigong. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And I had come across Qigong before because I had just finished reading uh, a biography about Iggy Pop. Oh. And the way Iggy Pop stays thin and crazy is Tai Chi. And I yep. thought, well, Tai Chi at that point was too much for me, but Qigong yeah. was ideal. And Qigong present pacifies anybody can do it at yep. any given time anywhere yep. and that's really one of the things that i found that i hold on to some of those movements and some of the breathing and some of the self-awareness when stress comes to hit uh, with emdr you can also take some of those practices home as well that's good and uh yeah, the qigong is interesting because i was introduced to it when i was a child um mm -hmm. i don't know if you i don't I don't, I wouldn't imagine you went, but do you remember um, a, a camp called Burgundy Farms? No, I don't. So when, I don't know, I was like five years old, you know, or whatever, I'd go to a summer camp, Camp Burgundy Farms, you know, not far from where we're at. Mm -hmm. um, let's see just where we go with, um, with this. Um, let's see if we can tie it up in nine minutes because I think we're kind of at that time anyways. Okay, yep. Um, and I learned Qigong there when I was like five years old and, yeah. um, you know, doing martial arts my entire life and then revisiting, uh, working with other people in college, um, Qigong, Qigong really, I think to some extent, I don't always call it Qigong anymore. Um, you know, moving meditation. Um, but, um, it, it's probably one of the single biggest influences in my life in terms of mental health, dealing with, you know, being obsessive compulsive and, um, <clears throat> anxiety and everything else. Like, I don't know how I would get through life if it wasn't for, you know, moving meditation and, yeah. um, you know, so it makes sense to me that when you found Chinese medicine, that was, you know, something that, that helped, yeah. um, Something and I love that it was through Iggy Pop too. That. <laughs> no, that's pretty badass too. I mean, come on. Um, I, I had no idea Iggy Pop was into Tai Chi or, or any of that. So, I mean, that's that's pretty epic. Um, so, as far as where you're at in your journey now, like you're, you know, you've got the book out. So, you know, anyone can mm -hmm. go and read your book. Um, you're on social media. Um, what's the kind of the primary message that you want to put out there in the world just in in general or having specifically to do with sepsis but like what's the what's your takeaway um and how you move forward in life now yeah my my big takeaway is pretty simple it's take care of yourself take care of me and i i have been battling the past few years with being selfish and i've in order to get better i had to be yeah 
and coming to terms with that is okay if I take care of myself. Like That's I mentioned awesome. earlier, simply being able to say, nope, I'm not doing that is a remarkable step in anyone's yeah. progress. And that really helps draw those lines between giving and taking as well. Yeah, I think part of what makes, um, you know, Ashley and I have such a great relationship is that we both, you know, came to each other older. We've been together for three years. So, you know, I was in my forties mm -hmm. and she's in her you know, mid thirties and we have very distinct boundaries for yeah. who we are, where we're going in life. And uh, like last night, for instance, she, she had a really long day at the markets and I said something to her. She was like, I just really need not to be spoken to. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was, and that was it. You do your thing. You finished your work and you go to bed yeah. and life will be great. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. That's very important. Yeah. 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 That's pretty amazing. Um, so where can people get your book? So, uh, I'm hoping it's in bookstores soon, but uh, you can order it on Amazon. And I have a copy of it here to show off. Awesome. And uh, that picture, my wife took it. That's in the Alps one year after my release from the hospital. Oh, wow. And I just have to point out that Nyla here, the white dog, and Leo. Nyla came with us from Alaska. Leo was a street dog in Serbia but they're both my emotional support dogs now and they accompany me to work. Yeah. Dogs that must job. have a whole new meaning for you now, huh? Yeah, they were, I was at home for two years recovering and they were at my side always. Yeah. It's amazing. And uh, yeah, just, it's amazing that you have a being that just being present makes everything better. They're just love animals. I swear to God, they're just nothing. <clears throat> Dogs are just full of love. All they want to do is give love. Yeah. It's really amazing. Yeah. And so it's, uh, yeah, when you're asking about reasons that, and the dogs are there too. I mean, dogs have been around in our lives for, yeah, since the beginning. Yeah. So hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. Even when I was born, there were dogs in the house. <clears throat> so it's been yeah, a, me too. A constant, a constant, yeah, yeah. Oh, now <laughs> back the um, yeah, book on on uh, Amazon. But uh, you can. I'm on Facebook, the Todd K. Denick, um, as a writer, and my website link is there too, mm -hmm. Todd K. Denick. And I'll put it in the show notes as well. Yeah, Weebly. And I, I put up short stories and a variety of other things there because um, just if we can talk real quick that one of the other things that has driven me is writing. Mm. Um, writing has always been kind of in the background, but I was this to start writing about my, my process was suggested by a friend from college. And so we started sending, she was doing some writing, I was doing some writing and sending it back and forth. So I had goals, I had things to do. And uh, those writings, writing 15 words a week, getting my brain back, um, eventually turned into a book that started a process of, of writing. And I write one to 2000 words every day. Um, oh, it's amazing. I have, 
I have 10 novels now done that are, are being, uh, I'm trying to get them get out there to pick up. Yep. And so that's another get thing. An agent. Just, yeah. Well, yeah, that's difficult. Yeah, I um, know. Yeah. You have a, yeah, you're fighting against great wordsmiths that are still out there, but still, you know, just sitting down and writing every day, even if they don't go everywhere, that is the, that's, that's a, a big reason for me to get up and get moving in the morning. No, that's amazing. I mean, that's so, writing and music also must have a whole new meaning for you as well then. So it's not just, uh, not just playing anymore. It's not just uh, writing anymore. They all, each one has a, a new heightened reality for you, I'm guessing. Yeah, no doubt. It's, it's much more, there seems to be much more purpose behind it now than there has been before. And especially since you have, I still have that goal to become as good as I once was. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's, uh, even though, even though I've kind of settled and know that that may not happen, but well, I'm okay with that as well. Also, what is, what does that mean? I mean, you could end up being mm -hmm. better and than you ever were before, but just in a way that you never would have imagined because exactly. the way you do things is different. Yeah, if you told me three years ago that I'd have time to sit down and write 10 books, I would have never would have believed you. And you're still working too, right? Yeah, I'm still working. I've actually, I went back this year in August and I started full time after our spring break. So I'm now back to work full time after. I mean, that's also an amazing years. accomplishment. I mean, before you were overworking yourself and giving too much, and now you're writing 10 different 10 <laughs> books and you're still working, you're still a father, you're still a husband and you're doing and you're healthy and you're happy. So, I mean, that's a, that's an, a major accomplishment in and of itself. Yeah. I, from what I've been through being here, yeah, being able to talk to you, being able to do anything is an accomplishment. Yeah. And I, that's I awesome. think that's a, yeah, I think that's a, I should probably write that down and take that with me. <laughs> yeah. Don't forget to leave a comment or a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. New episodes every Tuesday and check us out on YouTube for short clips from each episode. Thank you. And until next time, remember your life story is yours to write and rewrite as many times as you want. <laughs>